Hello, it's Monday the 25th of January. This is Guardian Daily with Douglas Hardy. In today's programme, City Minister Lord Miners calls for a full inquiry into investment banking. He's talking quite a lot about um, investment banks and how their culture has become too dominant in our society. An aid worker who helped pull a 24-year-old man alive from the rubble in Haiti 11 days after the earthquake tells us her story. None of the guys was were small enough, so I'm an acidalgo, so I went straight in, so we're out. It's like four metres inside the building with concrete just right above my head, so it was just a tight squeeze to get in. It's a big week at the Chilcot Inquiry with the most high-profile figure of all due to give evidence. Tony Blair is the person who made a very personal point of waging the war. He made the case for the war very effectively to the um, House of Commons, and he's the person who a lot of people in the country believe sold the country a false prospectus. So can't help but believe that will bring it to life. It's Burns Night tonight, and haggis lovers in the United States have a particular reason to celebrate as a 21-year ban is lifted. And as The Guardian features some of the best-loved romantic poets, we hear from the former poet laureate, Andrew Motion. We're all romantics at heart. I mean, Yeats very famously says the last romantic's dead and gone, doesn't he? But actually, the last romantic is still walking among us. The last romantics are. We are the last romantics. Guardian Daily from guardian.co.uk The City Minister, Lord Miners, is calling for a full inquiry into the investment banking industry. He's chairing a meeting today on the future of banking with G7 officials, the IMF and the World Bank. Lord Miners has outlined his ideas in an article for The Guardian. And our business editor, Deborah Hargreaves, says he wants to see significant changes in the way our banks operate. Well, unusually, he's calling for a full and independent inquiry into investment banking and how that has affected the rest of society. He's talking quite a lot about um, investment banks and how they're far too dominant. Their culture has become too dominant in our society. How do these comments uh, fit in with what we heard from Barack Obama last week? Is there a link? Is this going to be a kind of global global drive to address the banking issue? Well, of course, it reflects a lot of public unease about the banking sector and how they were bailed out only a year ago to the tune of billions of pounds or dollars and now are bouncing back and paying big bonuses, making huge profits. So uh, there's a lot of public anger on both sides of, of the Atlantic. Um, Miners this morning is um, hosting a meeting in London with his G7 counterparts in which they'll be talking about all sorts of global rules that should be introduced on banking. And I think the Barack Obama decision last week to go ahead and break up banks will be one of them. There will be US Treasury officials here talking about it. I think there will be an international move to fall in line behind Obama at some point to see if he can get this through. Because, I mean, there has to be global agreement, because otherwise, you know, if, if one, if we introduce different rules, banks will just go elsewhere, surely? Well, that's always been the fear in the UK. Gordon Brown has been pressing for a crackdown on banks, but the fear is that we can't go it alone because um, otherwise um, they'll all just move to the US or somewhere else. But with Obama setting the tone on this, that means that makes it much more powerful because Wall Street is such a powerful uh, part of the of US society. And if the, if it happens there, it has to happen elsewhere. And what do we know about Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling's position on whether they are going to fall into line with, the, with Obama? Are they behind him? 
Well, there's a lot of pressure on the government to go along with those plans. What the government's actually been saying and what Paul Miner says this morning in The Guardian is that they've done similar things and will get to the same place, but by introducing slightly less draconian measures. I'm not sure that's actually the case. And I think eventually these um, the ideas that um, Obama is putting forward will come into place across the world. The kind of public focus surrounding this issue really is about bonuses and how you know people are angry that bankers, despite uh, the perceive the perception that they've got us into this mess, they're still getting bonuses. What what you know? How could that issue move? Well, there is a huge amount of public anger about bonuses, rightly so. And although investment banks are saying that they're showing some restraint, for example, Goldman is going to restrict bonuses to just a million pounds each for its top hundred people in London. <laughs> poor poor dears, and. Uh, they, they are saying that they're cutting back, but the Treasury has an internal estimate that the new bonus tax introduced by Alistair Darling could raise as much as £3 billion. Well, when it was first introduced, the estimate was £550 million. So the banks are still paying big bonuses and and, and that uh, doesn't seem to have changed their behaviour as much as they were hoping. And the meeting that uh, Paul Marnes is chairing today, will they look at that issue? There will be some discussion of bonuses, yes, and there are um, pay guidelines in place to try and get banks to pay bonuses more in shares and defer them and to have all sorts of restraints on them. A lot of banks haven't actually taken much notice of that, and uh, we'll see if they if they do. Deborah Hargreaves, and you can read the full article by Lord Miners at guardian.co.uk slash comment. And elsewhere on the Guardian's website today, why the recession means state primary schools are being overwhelmed by numbers. More details at guardian.co.uk slash education. Green campaigners are preparing to take the oil company Shell to court. Guardian.co.uk slash environment. And go to guardian.co.uk slash world to discover how an Italian TV crew stumbled upon a Roman aqueduct which archaeologists have been searching for for years. In Haiti, most search and rescue teams are preparing to leave the country despite the weekend rescue of a 22-year-old man who'd been buried for 11 days. Greek, French and US aid workers were among those involved in the two-and-a-half-hour operation to free Wismond Exantus. Aid worker Carmen Mikalska was one of them and she's been speaking to our reporter Rory Carroll. To go through like five or six sections of Luton, there was guys with knives, it was just absolutely horrendous. And we had to get out of the car because we couldn't get any further close to the place. So we had to literally run from the bottom side of the street all the way up here to get to the, to the location. Wow. And so at what point then um, they, they were communicating with the guy? Well, we communicated from him, we managed, we managed to get up, we pulled some of the rubble away and then we managed to establish contact straight away, but we didn't know exactly how far any was. We found the area, but we didn't know how far any was. So. Mm-hmm. And then at what point they, they made a, a hole or a, an access point into the Yeah, street? we were just, well, basically, because we, we called it in half past 12, uh, we just pulled as much as we could away and then the French team arrived about quarter past two, they came. Um, and apparently they had finished. They were closing up, so it was. They were quite shocked as well that we that we put that. Um, it was one of the locals on the street. They had a card from one of the French team, and they called him personally and said, "Look, we found somebody." So he used and obviously got everybody down here. Um, once, uh, basically, we were trying to get 
into the building as much as possible, but we only managed to open just a small space. So they sent in the French rescuer down at the bottom, so she was down there, but they needed somebody else to go in, and none of the guys was were small enough. So I'm on, I said, I'll go. So I went straight in, so I was like four metres inside the building with concrete just right above my head, so it was just a tight squeeze to get in. So That must have been terrifying. Well, it was uh, rather smelly, but it was OK. <laughs> it, but it was nice to actually get down to the bottom and actually physically see somebody alive and smiling, and he was just so happy to see us. He was there holding the torch while we were fixing the wood to get it cut, yeah. And um, did you speak to him? What did he say? Well, he's, he's French and I don't speak French, but he was like, he was very happy that we were there. Rory Carroll talking with aid worker Carmen Michalska in Port-au-Prince. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Back here and the Chilcot inquiry continues this week with Tony Blair himself due to appear on Friday. He's expected to face six hours of questioning and some of the public seats at the session will be occupied by family members of service personnel or other Britons killed in Iraq. Tom Clark is following the inquiry and says Blair's appearance will definitely be the highlight. Well, it'll certainly bring it to life. Tony Blair is the person who made a very personal point of waging the war. He made the case for the war very effectively to the um, House of Commons, and he's the person who a lot of people in the country believe sold the country a false prospectus. So he's there. That will give it a kind of feeling that the real central issue, the central person, is being is being tackled, and I can't help but believe that will bring it to life. Now, the, the sort of legal issues, the issue of whether the, the war was legal or illegal, still hasn't gone away. What's the kind of status of that line of inquiry? Well, it's interesting. We're seeing reports now that a whole load of lawyers from up, up high up in the Foreign Office uh, were convinced it was illegal all along. Um, one of those, back at the time in 2003, whose name I think was Elizabeth Wilmhurst, resigned, one of the only officials to resign during the Iraq saga, because she said that the Foreign Office had been changing its line a couple of times about whether it was illegal. First, it said without a second resolution, which of course wasn't got in the end, war would be illegal. Secondly, it said, ooh, maybe, and this is the longer advice that Lord Goldsmith wrote. And then in the end, when a gun was held to, well, if you believe the anti-war lot, the gun was held to Goldsmith's head and he had to decide uh, whether to say it was legal or illegal, he just cut away all the caveats and said it's legal, at which point Elizabeth Wilmhurst resigned. Now, lots of her colleagues, who some would say were less courageous, stuck it out anyway, decided to believe the Attorney General. What we're seeing now is that as power drains away from Blair and maybe even Brown, some of those officials are maybe going to be more prepared to speak their own mind than they were to Lord Butler or Lord Hutton. And just finally, I mean, you've said that the Tony Blair might bring proceedings to life, and that may well be the case. But is is he going to say anything different? I mean, we didn't see Alistair Campbell just repeated what he always said. Isn't Tony Blair simply going to repeat the lines that we've all heard many, many times before? I think he probably will. Um, but um, of course, he's now confronted with rather more evidence of what other people think about it all than he was when he previously has has had to defend. The decision. What we now know, for example, to an extent that we didn't, that he was getting advice from the Foreign Secretary Jack Straw at the eleventh hour about how it was still possible 
to back down. It's also true that after the Hutton and Butler inquiries, a lot of very important documents leaked out. They came out in the run-up to the 2005 election and they showed that the British government was told that Washington was fixing the facts. And we saw then that the Foreign Secretary had said he wanted to put up a case to the UN in order to spin, uh, uh, give give a rationale for war. But Tony Blair has never really had to explain in forensic detail what he makes of all of this. So he will have some new questions put to him. But yes, I expect he'll deal with them in that familiar and brazen style that we're all used to. Now, it's Burns Night tonight, and Scottish expats in the United States have a particular reason to celebrate. A 21-year embargo on importing haggis is to be lifted. Our Scotland correspondent Severin Carell explains just why it was banned in the first place. If you remember in the 1980s, there was the Mad Cow or BSE crisis, which uh, you know paralysed the British beef and uh, meat industry. The United States imposed some pretty sweeping and swinging bans and restrictions on the import of any UK meat-based sausage products, including the haggis. And the haggis has been on the banned list ever since. And not since 1989, it's been illegal for an American to try and import haggis directly from the UK. So what what is haggis actually made of? Just to remind us what's in it. Well, essentially, it's sheep offal. I mean, traditionally, it was sheep offal that was boiled in a sheep's stomach. And I mean, we haven't used stomach for many, many years. It's now a kind of form of plastic. But the main ingredients are things like sheep heart, stomach lining, oatmeal, suet, pepper and other spices. And as you say, the ban was in place for 21 years. There's a lot of people of Scottish descent in the United States. Are there any tales of uh, kind of bootleg haggises making their way over there? there there are lots of apocryphal stories. I mean, I have to say that I've looked at this in the past and I've, we've, we've picked up stories and rumours from expats and from people that have given, given us knowing nods, saying that there are Scots and American Scots who have actually smuggled haggises into the United States. There are also Americans who have tried to make their own haggises in their kitchen using sheep produce of their own, which I think I, it's, it's unclear why it's necessarily illegal to do so in the United States. But in the US, the only legal way of making a haggis, I'm told, is to use beef, which, of course, is beside, entirely beside the point. And presumably the, the haggis industry has uh, responded well to the lifting of this ban and are looking for a, a huge expansion of sales across well, the Atlantic. Of course, they're, they're absolutely delighted. I mean, you know, haggis is doing extremely well at the moment anyway. I mean, last year when we were celebrating the anniversary of Burns' birth with this entire year of homecoming, sales increased by 19% year on year up to about £9 million worth. But that was only £9 million sold within the United Kingdom alone. And with upwards of £6 million Americans claiming Scottish descent. It's a pretty huge market, a pretty important market. The other thing not to forget is that American Scots are, in many respects, the backbone of the kind of Scottish diaspora. They're the people that have the strongest urge to retain and to build up and to create, in many cases, Scottish culture. So for them, being able to buy an authentic Scottish haggis from McSween's, say, the most famous haggis producer would be an amazing development. And it is, of course, Burns Night tonight. Will you be uh, eating a haggis or maybe even addressing one? Well, I certainly won't be addressing one. If I do eat one, it'll be a vegetarian haggis, which I'm, some people would regard as one of the greatest sins known to uh, the, you know, the culinary world. But actually, vegetarian haggis is a pretty good as well. 
Severin Carell reporting, and The Guardian's series on the Romantic Poets continues today with a look at the poetry of Robert Burns, which of course includes the address to the haggis. The series also includes booklets about Blake, Byron, Keats, Shelley and Wordsworth. Our literary editor Claire Armitstead has been speaking with the former poet laureate Andrew Motion about the concept of the sublime in Romantic Poetry. Well, to put it at its simplest, this is an idea which derives originally from Edmund Burke, um, in which the contemplation of some terrifying thing, object, landscape, concept, particularly mountainous scenery and steam-filled gorges and this kind of thing, in other words, crossing the Alps and all that jazz, um, inspires in the person looking at it a sense of awe and wonder. So it's a strange and rather interesting mixture of uh, fear and dread is how I would characterise it if I had to write my definition on the back of a matchbox. Mm, so it's not the best, which is often how it's used. It does now. I mean, the sublime goal, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's football sublime football terms. kick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that clearly does not quite mean what the Romantics used it to mean, though maybe it's in, it, in there somewhere. Yeah, yes. Now, and how important do you think they are today? I mean, have we not moved past them with modernism and postmodernism? Are we all romantics at heart? We're all romantics at heart. I mean, Yeats very famously says the last romantic's dead and gone, doesn't he? But actually, the last romantic is still walking among us. The last romantics are... We are the last romantics. Every generation is the last romantics. Because what every generation has to do is make a negotiation with this idea of the self that they embody. So they will never be gone. Um, I mean, of course, we don't think in quite those terms anymore. And of course, our sensibility, our sense of what a self might be, is more nuanced and in some respects significantly different now. But fundamentally, it's the same, I think. So to consider the modernists and the postmodernists as the only modern people seems to me a very serious mistake. The Romantics are the first moderns. Mm. And and their modernism, as I say, lingers in the air we breathe. Andrew Motion talking with Claire Armitstead. And that's all for this edition of Guardian Daily. From me, Douglas Hardy, and the producers Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe, goodbye for now. (laughs) 